In his acceptance speech in 1988, uh, George Bush Sr. used a term, a phrase, a thousand points of light. And he later used it in January of 1989 when he was inaugurated. He didn't invent the phrase, he used it. There were several authors that had used it before that, including C.S. Lewis. He used it um, in the Chronicles of Narnia when he was describing uh, Aslan creating the world of Narnia. But I think it's an incredibly vivid image. After all these years, it's stuck with me because it describes a, a truth, a reality um, in our lives. And that is that many small points of light taken together cumulatively amount to a great deal of light. For instance, if we blacked out the the windows and turn the lights off, if, uh, maybe, maybe it's midnight, so there's no light filtering in at all, and you know the power's out, uh, we wouldn't be able to see our hand in front of our face in the auditorium. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave. I've done that, you know, when you think, surely if I get close enough, I can see something, but you can't see a thing. Um, I used to scuba dive. I've been in blackwater diving. Same thing, you know, you think, Surely I can see, but you can't, and it's a little bit unnerving. But if one of us were to strike a match, it wouldn't be much light in, in this auditorium. But if we were all to strike a light or strike a match, the cumulative light would be a great deal. You know, that's, that's not a foreign concept for us, and that's kind of what Bush was saying, talking about, a thousand points of light and he applied it to how uh, volunteer organizations and uh, NGOs even churches uh, are have a positive effect on our culture and society in fact it's it's a need that we have a great need that's fulfilled by volunteer organizations and they're like thousand points of light individually not much light at all but Cumulatively, they light a path for us to be a better, better society. So I want to use that this morning to begin because Donna and I feel like we have had an experience like that in that scriptures, God uses scripture and uh, one author that I read called it God incidences versus coincidences to direct us just like uh, pearls uh, on a string can mount up to a beautiful necklace of pearls. Scriptures strung together by the Holy Spirit working in your life are how God chooses to direct us if we're honest with ourselves and with Him and apply it to our life. Most people who know me will tell you that I often say we muddle through and God guides us. You know, rarely do uh, in my experience, does God uh, give you a direct voice like he spoke to prophets and he spoke, uh, Jesus spoke to uh, Saul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus? We don't have that experience, but he still guides us. He still directs us through his inspired word. And so, you know, like uh, sailing, you can't, you can rarely sail in a direct line unless, you know, the wind's blowing exactly in the direction you want to go. You have to tack. You go from one side to the other in a zigzag to get to where you want to go. And our experience in allowing uh, God or answering God's call for us that ultimately led us to be missionaries for the last 20 years in Latin America 
was an experience like that. We just kind of muddled through, made the best decision we could based on what we felt like Scripture was telling us to do. Sometimes I find that I will be stewing over a situation and a scripture will come to mind and I think, ah, that's, that's, that's the answer. At other times, I'll hear someone talking and I'll recognize, oh, that's true. And I think all of those are ways that God uses to direct us in a zigzag form in life so that we are walking in the path that he wants us to walk in. In fact, that's what preaching is supposed to do. I love this verse uh, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. It says, uh, the Apostle Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. The King James Version said, The foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And I think it's just interesting. Paul was a trained uh, orator in the classic Greek rhetoric. You see that when he goes to Athens and he begins to address the intellectuals who did nothing but come to the marketplace uh, to hear or tell some new thing, Luke says. Paul was trained in this, this art of oratory rhetoric, and he says, he uses the phrase, the foolishness of preaching. And I've thought about that a lot. The idea that Richie or someone can get up and preach and his words can transform a life is just kind of silly. I mean, if I were God, I would not do it that way. Tongue in cheek. But God chose through his word, his inspired word, to literally even when it's spoken by fallible uh, people, God's Word changes lives, and it'll change your life. As I said earlier, no matter where you are, you haven't arrived. You know, God, uh, young or old, God is still calling you to, to a higher level of service. It just looks different. It looks different from person to person, and from decade to decade in one's life. There are a thousand ways and more that God gives us, guides us individually to follow Jesus' footsteps if we'll only listen for them and answer the call. One of the most sobering thoughts in Scripture for me is found in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, where Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. That's what the English Standard Version says. The King James Version said, redeeming the time. That phrase, making the best use of time. Your time. How much time do you have? Well, none of us know. redeeming the time, making the best use of it for the kingdom because you were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Jesus paid for you, and you owe it all to him. I suppose you could say that thought, redeeming the time, is what led Donna and I, when I was 36 years old, 
to make a mid-career, mid-life decision. We had all the accoutrements of a blessed life, as we often say here in America, you know, a blessed life. That meant we had uh, a house in the suburbs in Atlanta, and Donna was driving a Jaguar. We both enjoyed driving that car. That's a fabulous car. We, I was building an apartment complex in Bloomington, Indiana, and we were driving back. Uh, we had taken our kids up there because I was spending a week up there at a time, and Donna brought the kids up when school was off. And I went to sleep in the back seat, and I woke up, and I looked over her shoulder, and she was doing 112. <laughs> and it felt like 50. She was flying. It was a wonderful car. So we had all those things, but something was missing in our life. I've already mentioned in worship that I spent my childhood in Pakistan and Australia as the son of missionaries and that Donna confessed that, that you know, she secretly had always want, wanted to be a missionary. But it took me a long time to realize what I wanted to do and what God was calling me to do. And I really think I was born into the family that I was born into as part of God's preparation for me and Donna to be missionaries in Latin America. At the ripe old age of 20, I decided that I was not going to be a missionary or a preacher, and I pursued a career in construction, first as a superintendent in commercial construction, then later as a project manager working out of an office. And at 36, I was the VP of a general contractor building large apartment complexes, uh, eight to $15 million projects. I was uh, working long hours and commuting back and forth to the office a couple hours a day in Atlanta traffic and traveling on top of that out of state. Uh, but we felt like something was missing, even though we had what um, most people would say a good life. We're very active in our church. Just to, give you how, uh, just to give you an idea of uh, what traffic was like in Atlanta during those years, we moved there in 1982. The metropolitan area had 1.2 million people. It now has 6.4 million people, and it was just growing literally every day. Month by month, my commute uh, was increasing 15 minutes a time each way. You're nodding your head. You've had that experience. It's... It's maddening because you spend your life uh, on the road all the time or at the office. You leave earlier and earlier so that you're not sitting for 45 minutes or an hour on the interstate to get to the office. One time I left my office, which was on the, the northwest uh, side of Atlanta where I-75 and the perimeter 285 uh, intersect, and I was going all the way over to the northeast side in traffic in the afternoon and they have this big flyover and you it's it must be a hundred feet off the ground and so I was up on that flyover headed north on uh, I-85 towards South Carolina and it was just gridlocked and I was sitting there for 15 or 20 minutes and I looked north and it was gridlocked like eight lanes of traffic at least I looked to the east 
and it was gridlocked. I looked to the west, it was gridlocked. I turned around in my seat and looked south on I-85, and it was gridlocked. And I thought, these people are crazy. They do this every day. They must spend half their life in traffic. And then I thought, I'm crazy. I do this every day. And that was one of those points. It's funny to tell it now, but it was one of those points of light among many that God used to begin a process that Donna and I went through of saying, okay, you know, we're mid-30s. What do we really want to do in life? And ultimately, we made the decision uh, to go to Latin America as missionaries. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I know I speak for Donna and I speak for myself when I say this. Even though making the decision to be missionaries meant uncertain income. Um, we had friends that told us, don't do that. That is not what God wants you to do, to uproot your kids. My father-in-law would not speak to me for years because we took his grandchildren away from him. We've encountered all manner of hardship. Not once have we felt like we made a mistake. Not once have we wanted to quit and go home because we found peace in making that decision we found the rest that jesus talks about it's been difficult and hard we could talk for hours about all of the things that satan has done and is doing to cause us to want to quit to give up but we don't give up we just pray that god will increase our faith so that we can be faithful to what it is that he's called us for. Our first mission was in Mexico. Uh, we moved there in uh, 1998 in October, right before Hurricane Mitch hit Honduras and Central America. Um, we spent five years there. We baptized 500 people or more during that time. It was an incredible ministry. We planted a church. Uh, that church named elders, we built a church building, and we established an orphanage, Ciudad de Angeles, that has 50 kids today. It was an incredible time. First nine months, we had baptized 40 people, and it didn't stop there. After five years in Mexico, the local church named elders. We had spent a lot of time preparing the church, teaching about builder, uh, biblical leadership, a plurality of elder shepherds. And we talked about Titus 1 and verse 5, where Paul says to Titus, a church without elders is an incomplete church. Set right what is lacking, name elders in every church, he said. And so everyone was excited. The ladies had prepared food to commemorate the day, and we were going to install the elders, uh, the men that the church had put forward uh, as elders. And our son Harrison was 10, and he had a few buddies that he ran around with at that time, and they were all talking about how wonderful it was that we were finally going to have our own leaders. And one of his friends, a little boy named Kevin, said, yeah, but we know Phil's still in charge. (laughs) So we laughed about that, but the wheels started turning. We thought, oh, 
you know what? A missionary has a pretty big footprint. And it was time for those elders to have space to, to be the leaders that God intended for them to be. And so we made a decision to go back to the States. It was 2003, and we went back to what we knew, which was uh, real estate and construction. Donna had her license as a real estate broker. We were developing uh, lots and building houses, high-end houses and uh, selling them. And then 2007 and 2008 happened. And if you remember back then, it's impossible for me to think about selling a house now where you take bids on the house and you, you take the highest bid. I mean, if we sold a house in 90 days, we thought, wow, that was fast. Now people sell it in a day or a weekend. And then 2007, 2008, the market crashed. Atlanta was hit very hard, and it became clear we were not going to be able to continue our business in real estate, which is where our income came from. So we sat our two youngest children. Our oldest daughter was at the University of Georgia at the time studying. We sat our two youngest children down, Harrison and, and Laura. Uh, he was 16, and she was 11, and we said... <clears throat> few things are going to have to change. <laughs> you know, we're losing our business. Um, we're going to have to give up our 4,800-square-foot house with a one-acre manicured lawn. No more skiing vacations in Colorado. You know, things are going to be tough. They're not like what they're going to be. We don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to have to get jobs that are not in real estate. And Harrison, 16 years old, had been back in the States for... Um, six years and had never failed day after day to ask his mother when are we going back to the mission field said to his younger sister laura well it sounds to me like we're going back to the mission field which country do you want to go to laura and so they were having this conversation about where we were going to go and we said wait we didn't say that we you know we weren't ready to make that commitment but Again, one of those God incidences out of the mouth of babes, uh, the wheels started turning. We were thought, well, what do we really want to do with our life? And I got a phone call from Dr. Dan Coker, taught at Abilene for years. He was a great mentor, uh, one of the greatest Church of Christ missionaries in Latin America ever. Uh, he called us and said, hey, they're looking for a president for the Baxter Institute in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. It's a four-year uh, bachelor's degree in theology that they give. It's a great school. It's done a lot of good. And they want to know if you would be uh, willing to interview for the job. And so I said, let me talk to Donna. Honestly, I didn't know where Honduras was. <laughs> I just knew somewhere in Central America, south of Mexico, and uh, Don and I talked about it, and we, having experienced God leading us in the past, we decided, well, we need to go check it out. So we flew down and translated for a medical brigade, and while we were there, uh, we went to visit Baxter, and we talked with Steve White, who was the current president at the time, and in about 15 minutes, we realized, ooh, this is not a good fit. <laughs> Uh, 
main reason was we were looking for a ministry and mission that our family could be involved with, and that would have been a job for me, but there was really no opportunity for Donna or for our children to serve and work in mission like they had in Mexico when we were there. But while we were there in the country, we traveled around and uh, looked at a couple of places, and by God's providence, we ended up in Santa Rosa de Copan, which is in the uh, Northern Triangle. You hear about that a lot when they talk about illegal immigration because that's where a lot of the immigrants are coming from. It's right in the crosshairs of drug trafficking, um, a lot of violence, mainly gang-on-gang uh, gang violence. But you saw in our video, Ulema, who is the head of, uh, at the time, was the head of our public school values education program. She said, we are helping these children have an option of what to do in life other than be an assassin. Because there, we have boys in one of our programs, and they make a choice. Do I want to study, or do I want to go to work as a pistolero, you know, for the local drug trafficking guy? It's a career choice which is mind-boggling. So it's, it's a tough, tough area in some sense where we are, uh, Santa Rosa, um, for some reason it's kind of protected. It's sort of a Switzerland in the middle of, uh, you know, chaos. Uh, it's very, very safe there. A lot of the drug lords invest money in Santa Rosa, building buildings and stuff, so it drives the price of real estate up. That's the worst effect that we feel in Santa Rosa. But um, we wound up there, and it looked like it had the, the opportunities that we were looking for, which was we wanted to work among the poor. We did not want to be bound geographically in any uh, artificial way, and so we had a whole region that we could work in, in, in the west of Honduras, which has 1.7 million people. It's a very uh, rugged, mountainous terrain, a lot like West Virginia. Um, and it felt good. It felt like that this might be where God want us, wanted us to go. And so it took another year. Uh, that was in 2008, in July. It took another, almost another year for us to prepare things to, to go. So finally it came time for us to pack up. We loaded everything we had, including uh, office desks and filing cabinets that were left over from our and computers uh, from our businesses that we had closed down. We put it in two different 40-foot containers, and we shipped them to Honduras, and we took off. Uh, we arrived and uh, spent the first three weeks in a hotel and traveled around, and um, I preached at some of the congregations there in the West, and we actually held some marriage seminars and realized most people in Honduras at least on a poor level, are not married. They just live together. They call it a free union. So we, re we realized, oh my, we, we have a lot of work to do. Because uh, we're having marriage seminars and they're not even married. So, you know, you, you're supposed to do that before you go to a marriage. Anyway, um, we also realized uh, that if we were going to make an impact, we had to get upstream. And that's what led to our DeSeo program, which is a public uh, elementary school public education values curriculum that we teach uh, using the Bible. You know, we can actually use the Bible in school there. 
So three weeks went by, and we got up one morning, a Sunday morning, and I was going to preach at a church about an hour away, and the hotel manager said, you can't leave the hotel. There's been a military coup, and the president has been arrested and flown out of the country and exiled to Costa Rica. They actually put him off in the airport in his pajamas, is what the story, uh, as the story goes. And so we were shut down. They had Humvees with 50 caliber machine guns on the top of them at most of the major intersections, a real strong military presence. And, you know, our experience in Latin America was Mexico. If that had happened in Mexico, there would have been a civil war because Mexicans in general as a culture, they're fighters. In Honduras, in three weeks, all anybody wanted to do was get back to work. So we were surprised, you know, how quickly it blew over. There were some ripple effects that lasted. But in three weeks, our, the port finally opened up, our containers were released, and we were able to furnish the house we'd rented, and, and we began working. Um, I want to ask you a question. What does it mean to you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you because that's one of the points of light that directed us surely there is something in your life or should be when you hear that those words of Jesus you can say well to me that means and it's something specific something immediate should come to your mind Another thing that should be there is that your life should look different than your unbelieving neighbors. You know, one of the problems with, with what we have had in the Bible Belt is that, you know, everybody was just pretty much good people. Whether they were believers or not, they followed biblical values because that was our worldview in the South and, and Southeast. But that is not the culture we live in anymore. Uh, scholars are talking about post-Christian. That we live in a post-Christian era now. Your life, in response to Jesus' command to seek first the kingdom of heaven, should look different from your unbelieving neighbors. I want to share with you what God has led us to do just quickly. Uh, Mission Upreach, living out these things that, that we feel like God used to direct our thinking. One is that we believe that everyone is called to obey the Great Commission. It's not just for the church in general. It's for us individually. Our approach is... Um, what we call an integrated approach. Um, what comes to mind is James chapter 2, where James says, uh, what good is your faith, basically, if you have a brother who's naked and destitute, and you say, be warmed and filled, go in peace. You know, He says, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. I grew up in a very conservative uh, church, uh, Church of Christ environment, and we talked about secular and spiritual. And I have heard other missionaries, contemporaries with my father, I was present when this was said, 
when someone in need of help said, can you help me with this? And they said, we don't do that. We just focus on the most important thing, and that's evangelism. We'll teach you how to be a disciple of Jesus and how to have eternal life. We don't think that's what we should be doing. It's an integrated approach. Even though helping the poor and doing other more humanitarian things are not the most important thing, if they are absent in our mission, we believe that we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. We believe that the great, carrying out the Great Commission is urgent. You know, we can't fiddle while Rome burns, as they said Nero did. You know, we have to be about the business of seeking and saving the lost. We have to understand that there will be people who are lost in eternity if we don't respond to the call that Jesus has given us to make disciples. One of the verses that has always sobered me is again from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Listen to this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You know, how do you reconcile? The fear of the Lord is what motivated Paul to preach to others so that they would be saved with what John says where he says God is love. Well, ultimately people will be condemned if they don't accept Jesus, the one and only Savior of mankind. And that should make the Great Commission or fulfilling the Great Commission in our lives an urgent matter. One of the things we do is use uh, the Apostle Paul's methodology of making disciples. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, he says... Uh, find capable men to entrust them so that they in turn can teach others. A multiplying effect. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus. He's not doing so well with the synagogues. Uh, and they throw him out and create a disturbance. And so he teaches for two years in a school of philosophy called the school of Tyrannus. And Luke says that during those two years, the whole of Asia heard the good news of salvation in the name of Jesus. So we focus on ways of multiplying. It's one of the reasons that we're focused on planting churches that are self-supporting. Our typical model for generations has been in working in third world countries is we pay a preacher on American salary. There's a lot of good that's been done that way, but it is not the best way, and there are a lot of problems with doing that. One of those is the church feels like, well, that's his job. He's getting paid by the brothers in America who are rich and can afford it. And so they States got an email and said, uh, your roof is leaking. <laughs> and that says, that's a true story. That, that says it all. For 
for there to be a grassroots revival, restoration movement, whatever you want to call it, for a community to be set on fire, they, those people have to be trained, equipped, given a vision, understand the mission, so that they are doing it themselves. And so we work on multiplying efforts. And part of that is focusing on building or planting churches that are self-sustaining. This is an example of what can happen if churches multiply. If one church plants one church, and then that church plants one church, look what happens in 20 years. You go from 8 to 1,010 churches in 20 years. If you do it where you just, the way we've always done it and the way we have done it, we've planted 26 churches in 12 years, which is, unfortunately, compared to other missions, is a lot of churches, and it's so few compared to what needs to be done. What we have not been able to do yet, and we're changing our methodology and our practices to, Lord willing, achieve that, is help a church that we plant to plant a church and then help that church to plant a church. It's only that way that we'll be able to reach the people that need to be reached with the gospel. Some of the things that we uh, focus on, we've organized our ministries and efforts uh, using this uh, pyramid. Down at the base, we have uh, what we call um, outreach ministries. And those things focus on helping others, humanitarian works. Our, our public school program that teaches values, we have an afternoon program that is uh, upward basketball. It uh, teaches Bible through the use of basketball through children's leagues. Uh, we have a school for deaf that you uh, heard about in the video. We have village medicine where people like you come and we do a brigade in a village and we see at least a thousand patients over the the days that we're there and they get a medical consult and uh, medicines as prescribed we have a 120 acre working farm because of the moses project and we have up to 50 boys at a time that live on that project and finish their education they have discipling courses they learn agriculture science horticulture and so when they graduate from that program, they're not only educated with a formal education, but they also have good practical skills in uh, agriculture, which is what the industry is in our region. Um, we have a program, a very small program, for girls who've been abused or abandoned by their family. And then we have our core ministries, which are the ones that, that focus on training men and women to be disciple makers and trainers. And that's CREO, which is uh, a six-week basic training program. There are six one-week models of intensives. We have Cresco, which is a two-year Saturday Bible school. And the result is self-sustaining congregations. So that's a quick overview, as quick as I could make it. I appreciate your patience. But I want to encourage you to get involved with us. Um, there's lots of ways you can do that. We've had some people come over the years. I know Joe came uh, 2014, I think, so seven years ago. 
And then later, uh, Claude Ross came and Mark Groveunder and, and some others. And then Bruce brought a group. I think the first year he was here as youth minister, he came with a small group. Uh, we'd love to have more of you come. There's no substitute for being there and seeing what God is doing through our efforts. And we'd like to encourage you uh, to get more involved. So God bless you and thank you for your time.